and welcome to Series 4 of the Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. It's now two years since the first ever podcast went out and we've covered many issues, interviewed patients, families, nurses, surgeons, oncologists, researchers, dietitians, charity workers and fundraisers, all sharing their experiences, knowledge and wisdom. This series opens with special episodes for Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. This year we are focusing on palliative and end-of-life care, which holds some special challenges given the current survival rates for the disease. We have a lineup of wonderful people for the months to come. We are pleased that this year the podcast will be in support of all four Pancreatic Cancer charities, Pancreatic Cancer UK, Pancreatic Cancer Action, Pancreatic Cancer Research Fund and the Elizabeth Coatman Fund. If you listen to the podcast, please subscribe, share and help others understand more about this disease, its impact, the current survival rates and the hope for change in the future. The Purple Rainbow podcast is made in memory of Seth Goodburn and it's a part of Seth's legacy. Welcome to Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. It is November when we're recording these and November is, of course, Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. So we won't let you down. As always, we will bring you a month full of podcasts to help raise awareness. And as Leslie has already explained, we are going to be talking to a wide range of people and a wide range of experiences. We're kicking off this week with talking to Rachel and to Vanessa. We'll hear from Vanessa first. She lost her dad earlier this year, this year being 2020. So she lost her dad and had to deal with her dad's diagnosis during a pandemic. I began by asking Vanessa to tell me a little bit about her dad. Errol was 82 when he died and uh, he was born in India to a mum, dad and had an, old, uh, an older sister. He went to boarding school in India and met a chap called Peter who turned out to be my mother's older brother. My dad and my uncle were very, very good friends and remain so all through these years. But in the meantime, through the family being together and, um, you know, getting together for going out, what have you, my mum and dad became an item. So she was 16. He would have been 26 because there there are 10 years between them and uh, started dating and got married and were together forever until sadly he passed on the 15th of July. Oh, a proper... I love those relationships, those like first loves, only loves sort of relationships. Yeah. They're just, I love those stories. They're beautiful, well, aren't they? That I know. Although my mum would say, my mum always say, well, he had so many girlfriends up until the point that he met me. And actually there's a little story on the night they did actually meet up. It was an engagement party for a cousin of my mother's. And she didn't actually want to go to that party because that Errol Stagg would be there. And she didn't want to, because she already fancied him, she didn't want to go to a party situation and see him with another girlfriend. So she didn't want to go, but was persuaded by her mother and sister. And that was the night that they 
they became an item. So what was your dad like as a dad and, and a man? He was, he was very tall. He was very um, in command of the situation. He, he was very much a family man. He, he worked his entire life to pay off his mortgage. That was his end goal. He just wanted to be mortgage free. And that took us on a series of journeys, one of them to the Isle of Wight. He bought a hotel on the Isle of Wight before they came back to, to, to the mainland UK. He was strict when he needed to be strict. He was fair. We just grew up knowing normal things from that era, from being 70s children. Tell me then a little bit about, about what happened this year, obviously, because he sadly died in July. When did you first know, or when did he first know that, that there was something wrong? He... He never bothered people about anything that he had. The, growing up, the, we, we knew that he suffered with migraines because when he got one, he would take himself off to bed for the afternoon and, we, and you wouldn't see him. But more than that, I cannot remember anything to do with illness with regards to him, apart from one uh, cataract operation. So when he came to me at the end of May and told me that there was a problem with his urine... I was a little bit concerned because um, that wasn't normal for him. Anyway, um, he hadn't even told my mother at that point. And the reason being that she had had a hip replacement operation um, about six months prior to that. And he'd been looking after her. And so he, he, he just became continued with that carer role and didn't want to bother her with it. But I, I'm sensing that he, I was sensing then that he knew that that wasn't right. So he told me. At that point, I contacted my brother and sister and said that this had happened and we were a bit concerned. Um, we thought we could flush it out by, you know, drinking lots of things like coconut water and fluids. But three days later, there was no change. And um, it was a bank holiday weekend at the end of May. And I suggested that I call one of the doctors um, and to find out what for. We spoke to somebody who suggested it might be a kidney infection and prescribed a course of antibiotics which I was able to pick up that day even though it was a Sunday or a bank holiday Monday and then um, he took those for three days or four days and then on the Thursday uh, I was at their house and asked him how he was feeling and I looked at his face and I looked straight into his eyes and I could see that his pupils were yellow and I thought, oh, my gosh, what on earth is going on here? So I said, Dad, I think we need to call the doctor. Your pupils are yellow. I said, do you mind showing me your arms or your legs just to see if it's anywhere else? Anyway, he lifted up his shirt and his body was yellow. We hadn't noticed it. So anyway, I got on to the doctor immediately. They called him in for a blood test within the hour. And then by five o'clock that afternoon, the doctor phoned me and, and said, we've had the results of the blood test and there's a severely abnormal liver function. Could you take him to the hospital? I'll arrange all the paperwork. We need to go in immediately for tests, which is what we did. Um, we packed, my mum packed an overnight bag for him um, and I took him to, to our local hospital, uh, which is in Portsmouth. Um, and... 
had to leave him there because he was staying overnight for, for they wanted to do a CT scan and various other tests, urine, blood and everything else. Um, and and that's that was the first step in us knowing that something seriously, seriously had gone wrong with him. And of course, 2020, if people are listening in the future, is the, the year of the pandemic, the year of lockdown, COVID-19. You were having to take your dad to hospital during lockdown, during the crisis or the first round of the crisis. What was that like for you? I was really scared and purely because I hadn't told my parents at this stage, but the doctor had suggested that it could be pancreatic cancer, but I didn't want to panic them. And I thought, you know, I've got to drive as well because I was feeling panicked myself. So I didn't really mention that bit. But what I was terrified of was us, me dropping him to the hospital and then that would be the end of it. We wouldn't be able to see him again. Um, because when I took him in, so we parked, I took him in and I noticed as we were going into the main entrance of the hospital that there was a table where people were dropping off bagged belongings to people within the hospital. And I, and I realised that be able to come, if, he, if he had to stay here now indefinitely because he's suddenly ill, we won't be able to come and see him. And that was really frightening. Um, because of course, when somebody is ill, that's all you want to be able to know that you can do is to go and visit that person. And I just feared for my mum not being able to visit him as well. Um, so yeah, that was, it was a quite, quite a frightening drive um, and sort of drop off to the hospital. Um, and of course, when I took him to the ward that he needed to go to, I, I was only able to go with him to a certain point and I had to give him his bag and I had to kiss him goodbye. And, and, I said, and again, you just you just don't know. You just don't know what when when you can see them again or. Yeah. So, you know, that, that whole going to a, with a person to hospital, dropping them off, going bedside with them and, you know, settling all their things in gone that wasn't there it's that ability to make sure they're as okay as they can be settled in and you, yes. and you you get that picture of well they're okay they're in the bed they've got i've seen the nurses they're all you know it's that make in, in your mind that you've done the best you can do to make sure they're okay and then you've left them in good hands and obviously they were you know going into good hands but it's not being able to finish the job off yourself and yeah the uncertainty afterwards yeah so that first visit to hospital, what happened next? Well, he he was able to he was he had his phone with him and he was messaging us in the evening saying that he would he'd had bloods and urine and and that, that they he was going to have a CT scan first thing in the morning. So he had quite a comfortable night, which was which was a relief. Um, and then the next day he had the scan, and then we got a call from the hospital saying that the, that the scan had taken place. Uh, and, but they had seen um, a cloudy mass in and around the area of the pancreas, which suggested that it was a tumour there. Um, but they needed to do another procedure, which was to, to put some stents in to deal with the jaundice side of things and also take some samples of whatever it was that was there. So, um, but they also said, but would he, he'll be able to come home this afternoon. My God, that was such a relief. Um, so again, went to the hospital to pick him up, but w again, they suggested it was cancerous. It was a tumor. So, you know, in your mind, you, you, you know, 
really what's going on, but you just don't want to face it. And um, so we, I went back to pick him up, brought him home and we had, uh, my brother and sister were here and it was just such a relief to, that he could come home because there was that fear that he would be in hospital and we wouldn't be able to visit him. But what they had said when they'd called is that anything that would need to go on, they'd be able to do it. He, he would be able to be an, um, an outpatient. So that was a relief. So we had a week um, of relative normality while we waited for the for him to go in again. And again, I took him for that. And again, I thought, oh, what you do? But I, anyway, with that one, um, what was so touching was the day before he went for that was just my mum. I was I was here at their house working just to help out, but just to see um just to see them together because it was really when you look back on it now it was really the last day of normality if there is such a thing that they had um so that yeah that was the last day and I think I'm welling up I'm sorry that's okay if you don't want to take a time if you want to take a moment that's absolutely fine and so I was just taking photos of them and they were they just literally sat together on a sofa all afternoon and it was so sweet You'll set me off in a minute. <laughs> but but it is, it's it's the normality that's so important, isn't it? And remembering your dad and your mum together, just being mum and dad, not being dad with cancer or mum looking after dad with cancer. It's the normality, having a cup of tea sitting on the sofa, probably having, a, if they're anything like my parents, having a bit of a dig at each other every now and again because one of them's wound, well, my dad's wound my mum up by being in the house or in the kitchen, which is her area. It's, it's, but you kind of want that, that normality. And it's lovely yeah. that you've got those photos and you've got those yeah. memories. Yes, it was so sweet. So, yeah, so that was, that was the, the, the last day. But by that time, um, he was incredibly yellow because this jaundice now um, had gone untreated completely. So he was very, very yellow um, in his, you know, you could notice it in his eyes and in his skin. Um, so, so that was the, that was the 4th of June. That was the last day of normality in the stag household. And then the next day um, I took him for this next procedure, which is where they put the stents in to allow that, uh, fluid to drain and you know to stop the bile and the jaundice and um when I went to pick him up they said they 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 were they said you you know that it's you know it's cancer and it's pancreatic cancer and it's this that and the other um but the she said that they said the nurse specialist will be in touch um so I took him home again and by that time he was quite drowsy because he'd had this operate, he'd been under anaesthetic. So um, he was able to, to, to sit with the family for a half an hour that evening, but he was very, very tired by that time. Um, and so the, by the next day, um, that had obviously taken its toll on him, that procedure. And I think after that, he came down once, maybe twice and then that was it he didn't come down again because he pretty much took to his bed and it really took hold of him by that time um and he was obviously losing his appetite because that just died a death really um and then we really spent the next sort of six to seven weeks 
it all it all happened quite quickly after that. The uh, district nurses came in, but they said, you know, you'd be better off calling palliative care in to look after him and to help your mum. You know, just from a dignity side of things, you know, when somebody's confined to their bed like that, they, you know, bed washing and all of that, it was really, and obviously using a commode. Um, and so that whole process was, it just went by in a flash of of him becoming iller and iller and, you know, down to one mouthful of food and then didn't eat anything for three weeks. And then that was pretty much... And he was able to stay at home, was he? Yes. We have this a hospice down here called Rowan's Hospice who were absolutely incredible. And in fact, they'd ha- helped two other members of my family, an aunt and a cousin, in the last couple of years. But they came in um, and they came every morning to to do basic, you know, hygiene things with him and make sure that the bed was changed and all sorts of things. And they were absolutely incredible. And they would, you know, they were sorting out things like giving him meds and making sure he was comfortable. Um, absolutely wonderful. Uh, and, and a relief, because you knew you could call them at any time, because there were a few incidents whereby we, we didn't really know what to do. Uh, so we were able to just phone them up and they would come straight back out again if it was the evening. So they were incredible, these ladies, you know, and also dealing with, again, coming back to the pandemic, you know, they were coming into our house, they, you know, they bless them, they were all masked and gloved and everything. Um, but, you know, it, it never phased them, they just came, they did a scrub up, they washed their hands, we provided towels and soap and everything for them, and, and they just just got on with it. What was it like having to deal with his death? like I say in in pandemic time when when the situation is is that you can't have a full-on funeral or it was still really uncertain as to what you could and couldn't do how did did that affect you as a family it did um it did purely because we were going my mum wanted to have all of the family over and we were going to have a because it was in in August we were going to have a garden to try to maintain as much social distancing as possible. We were going to have a party in the garden. In the end, it didn't work out that way. And it was just, I think the crematorium we used, I think by then the regulations were you could have up to 20 people, including the um, celebrant. Um, And so that worked quite nicely because that was myself, my brother, my sister, my mum, plus all our children, grandchildren, uh, plus my dad's sister. Um, and so we were I mean so that what that took up 20 of us in the um, crematorium and we had a lovely little service and then we we came back to my parents house and we we just had this enormous family breakfast and it was literally just the immediate family here did that take off pressure do you think it did for my mum because I think although she would have gone through with something larger, she didn't particularly want to. And I think for her, she's always very, very much been um, a homebody who just wanted to have children. That was her life's goal, which she did wonderfully. And for her, for us all to just be here, um, it, w- it was good. So from that point of view, I think for her, it was it was a perfect solution. Yeah, so she was just surrounded by her family and those yeah. that she loves and who loved her back kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I can I can see how that would, but would be, equally, would 
my dad's sister who he wasn't who wasn't able to see him throughout all of this being elderly herself and also caring for her husband with dementia um she wasn't able to come anywhere near us so that was really sad not you know that we couldn't really bring her uh into it so you know she was you know very much keeping her distance uh you know because of her family situation as well it's the lack of hugs isn't it it is when all you want to do is give someone a hug yes yes given your dad wasn't someone to bother people anyway much like my dad and I think pretty much lots of dads out there do you think the messaging that was coming out at the beginning of the of the pandemic at the beginning of the crisis of the protect the NHS stay at home the NHS is going to be overwhelmed by people with with COVID-19 do you think that might have stopped him from coming forward a little earlier and saying I don't think I'm very well or anything like that or do you think he would have waited the same amount of time to say anything quite possibly I think I think it 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 stopped him coming forward um first of all because he he doesn't like to trouble people and second of all with all that messaging going on and clapping for carers and everything else because i believe it was going on down here on this at this on their street um i i believe so yes and what would your message be then to so uh, as we're starting another national lockdown what would your message be to people out there who you know who might be concerned or, or worried just contact somebody contact your doctor don't work you know one of the things that came out of this was the amount I started reading up about pancreatic cancer and you can't afford to wait when I look back at how we attributed some of his symptoms you know weight loss um loss of appetite we we just thought well it's because he's been caring for my mother who had a hip replacement operation but actually it wasn't that at all he was more than capable of doing that it was it was this starting to take hold and you know, the, the speed, I couldn't actually believe the speed at which this all happened. And one of the reasons that I wanted to become more aware, involved with all of this is to bring awareness up because it, you just don't, you just don't know the speed at which it overtakes and can be devastating to a family. So no, you know, if any types of symptoms don't wait, just speak to somebody contact pancreatic cancer contact your doctor anybody um, can't afford to wait with this one because the symptoms just don't present until they've taken control and there's no way back and how's your mum doing oh she is lost at the moment her whole life has been with him looking after us obviously we're grown up now but you know that was her her life and it's an enormous hole and it's going to take her a good number of years to to get used to that not helped by the fact that she she has a failing eyesight um so it's just the whole thing looks a bit bleak for her at the moment but you know between us my brother and sister and I we're doing all we can to make it as comfortable as possible for her she had the first anniversaries really soon after he died. So it was his birthday and their wedding anniversary. They happened within two days of each other. So that all passed by in a blur. But of course, we've now got Christmas coming. Um, so I would just love to say to people, if you become aware of those symptoms and if you, if you feel any of them, don't just write them off as, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired or I'm losing my appetite or I've got a pain in my stomach get them checked out don't let them don't let them 
run on and on and on because it's too it's you can't afford to especially in days like we have today you know we're approaching another lockdown um i think if you need help find it instantly immediately as quick as you can thank you to vanessa for talking to us and telling us about errol and what they went through as a family i also spoke to rachel this week rachel is in her 40s her husband matt was also in his early 40s when he was diagnosed matt was um, very much larger than life he was um, always life and soul of the party he was a uh, very much a free spirit he loved traveling he loved uh, music he worked in the music industry so he was really passionate about music he was a lot of fun um he was always messing around with people and people just loved, loved being around him because he was so much fun so he really was a, a really lovely person to be around what happened to him? How how did you find out he had pancreatic cancer? Well, he'd been suffering, um, well, like now I realise so many people, with um, stomach issues for about 18 months. So he'd been going backwards and forwards to the GP and kept being told that it was various things ranging from um, IBS to, um, at one point, they put it down to stress because he did have quite a stressful job at the time. And this sort of went on and on, um, but without any resolution. And in the meantime, the pain was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and in the end, he Felt he wasn't getting anywhere, so we had luckily had private health insurance through work. So um, thought, well, I might as well use it. Arranged to have a private consultation, um, and from that got a scan very, very quickly. Um, and unfortunately, within about two weeks, was then told that he had metastatic um, pancreatic cancer. Um, and at the time, we didn't know anything about that. We weren't really even aware what it was. I don't think we always had no idea of the um, horrific um, outcomes that so many people unfortunately have. Um, so it was kind of then a, a bit of a, an absolute shock going right into the whirlwind of starting treatment. Um, and like so many people who were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at a late stage, his prognosis was never, never good. They were never sort of trying to build us up to anything other than the reality as it was. So um, we had to come to terms with that very, very quickly. And he had treatment for um, up to 22 months in the end, which I think for was far longer than um, the consultants ever imagined. So. Um, in terms of outcome, he actually, in inverted commas, did very well. But um, from the beginning, we were told that it was a devastating illness and there wasn't an awful lot that could be done. And he wasn't old by any stretch of the imagination, was he? No, absolutely not. He was 43 when he was diagnosed. Um, so, you know, he's about my age. He was really, really fit, really healthy. And I think um, this is probably the reason why he wasn't diagnosed, because you wouldn't look at him and think, oh, there's someone who is potentially a... Um, a cancer sufferer he was very very fit he ran marathons he wasn't overweight he was really healthy um, and even when he was first diagnosed there was some investigation as to whether it would be a neuroendocrine tumor because he was just in such good health other than the pain it was just one symptom that he had um, so I think that was perhaps why the GPs never went down the getting him scanned avenue because he just didn't fit any profile of someone who you might think was at risk of cancer. So do you think that put him at both obviously an advantage when the diagnosis came in, but obviously maybe a disadvantage before the diagnosis. Absolutely. I think had he, perhaps had he had more symptoms or had he looked unwell or had his general health been poor, then perhaps, I'm not saying that GPs didn't take him seriously, but perhaps more investigation would have been done. Um, As it was up until six months before his diagnosis, he was still running ultramarathons. He just didn't seem ill. And so I understand why, um, he wasn't pushed forward for scans and things, but it, obviously that 
in the end is devastating because by the time it was diagnosed, it was too late. Um, on the upside, I suppose his very, very good health did give him a bit more of a fighting chance for a little bit longer. And when he started his treatments um, and he had the Fulfurinox treatment, which is a very, very harsh chemotherapy, he was told, we'll go for 12. We'll see how many you manage because realistically, most people don't manage 12 because it's too harsh. And in the end, he had 22. So, you know, he did did sort of do better than all the statistics. But unfortunately, it was just the late diagnosis that meant there was, in the end, an inevitable outcome. What was it like going through that as as his wife? And because you've been together, well, for, for a very long time, hadn't you? Absolutely. We, we, yeah, we, I mean, although we, in inverted commas, are both, we're both young. Um, we met um, when I was just a student. I'd just finished high school, in fact. Um, rather funny story. We met um, while working at Alton Towers, the theme park, which don't think many people can claim. So we met both the students working there. And then we'd both sort of gone off and been to university and done all the normal things. So we'd kind of grown up together and had this fantastic life and we'd been traveling together. Um, so to then suddenly be thrown into this treatment cycle and this sort of hopelessness that you feel it was horrendous and we also have two young children at the time our children were um, 10 and 4 so you know we were trying to be realistic for them but keep keep things as normal as possible at home they were aware that daddy was very poorly that daddy was having to have treatment they knew what the illness was but we never kind of went into the inevitability of what was going to happen with them because we did want to try for as long as possible to keep things normal and it's that normality that's so important, isn't it? it I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, Matt worked throughout his treatments, um, even though because it was a fortnightly cycle, he'd have one week where he felt a bit ropey, a little bit ropey, but quite awful. And then the second week he'd be back at work, so we kind of worked out a system where he knew which days he'd have to have off work, and then he was back at his very busy job. He was working at the Manchester Arena at the time in charge of marketing, and. And that was a very, very full-on job, and he managed to keep that going right up until the last couple of months. Honestly, the more you talk about him, the more he sounds like just the most fantastic person going in just a really uh, strong spirit as well. It's that, is that is that right? Absolutely. He he wouldn't give into it. He never he never asked about his um you know the, the timeline. He never wanted to know because he always felt that as long as he was still going, he was he was still going. It would be all right, and he, he knew it wouldn't because we've been told in no uncertain terms what would happen. But he never asked. And several times he was asked, you know, do you want to know how long? And he never did. I think I probably did, but he didn't. And so we respected that. And he just kept going. And until the very, very bitter end when he just wasn't able to work anymore, um, he just kept going and he wanted normality. And you know, still went to the football and still went to gigs. And we still went on lots of holidays and we fitted them in around the treatment because he just wanted for as long as possible to keep to keep what our normal life was. I think that's so special. It really is. And then... Obviously, um, you say, you know, it got to the point where normal couldn't continue anymore. Mm-hmm. What was that stage like? Um, it was awful. He deteriorated quite quickly. Um, he was still in treatment up until the December of 2018. He died in the May of 2019. And between sort of Christmas and the May, so within about four months, he went from someone who was basically working full time to someone who was in excruciating pain, who was really struggling day to day. And it was the pain in the end that sort of became the factor that we knew that he couldn't carry on. Um, sort of, and, and at that point, I think the um, consultants were starting to say to us, you do realise that the treatment's probably done all it is going to do now and it's time to start. Not accepting, but, but, but being realistic about what the options are now. And how, you know, excruciating pain, it, it, it feels horrible just thinking about it. What what was that like for him, just being in there? I mean, it was awful. He did, and, you know, he, I'm not saying that 
people whitewash cancer and say it'll be okay because I have treatment. It was awful. He suffered immensely. Um, and I've since, with all the reading that I've done and the, obviously the research that you do when you're going through it, I've realised that pancreatic cancer can be a very, very painful cancer. Um, and pain management towards the end was something that he really did struggle with. Um, fortunately, at the end of his life, he was in the hospice and they were fantastic. And that was their priority, was getting him comfortable so that he could still carry on and he could still communicate and he wasn't completely knocked out with all the drugs he was taking but the, the pain was under control because that was the thing that at the end he really did struggle with. How important was it for him to be in the hospice then and have that care that personal care? Um, that, that made all the difference and um, it's a time that I will always look back on as obviously the worst time in my life however the week or so that he was actually in very hospice was more tolerable because before that, he'd been for about three weeks in and out of the Christie Hospital, sort of a few days in, a few days out. He wasn't receiving any more treatment. So practically, there wasn't anything more that could be done. Um, but the care wasn't patient-centred. It wasn't about him. It was about, is there anything we can do at this moment in time? And if not, I appreciate they're a very busy hospital. You have to go home again. So he was kind of backwards and forwards for about two weeks. Um, and then when a bed became available in the hospice, it suddenly changed and it was all about him and it was all about us as a family and it was all about making us feel that we mattered and that we were at the centre of everything and they made they allowed us to make so many decisions that when you're in a big hospital it's all taken out of your hands and you're just sort of waiting for the next person to come around to the bed to tell you what's happening next and you're frightened and you don't know what's happening next and you don't always understand what's happening because the last person you saw perhaps didn't explain exactly what was going on so you're just kind of waiting constantly in the hospice it was all about pain management it was about making the family welcome they um we, our kids came they were you know running riot in the hospice and they were fine with that they were all about just keeping us a sense of that we're still a family that we're still together that even though we knew that the inevitable was going to happen very shortly and in fact it was only about a week that he was in there that week was so much more tolerable I was allowed to stop I moved in basically and had a camp bed by the side of his bed and we were fine with that the first night we were there, he was actually not too bad. And we laughed and said, it's Friday night, we need a takeaway. And they went, go and order one. So we had a takeaway delivered. You know, it was it was that kind of strange niceness that had been missing for about three weeks. So the last week of his life was so much more tolerable than the sort of nightmarish three weeks that had gone before. And that's so important, isn't it? That, that you yeah. get that that time to be together, that time to just say your goodbyes in the way that, you, the only way that you, you, you can. And it's not in a overly clinical setting isn't it absolutely it's, it's it was very homely it was very comfortable we joked it was you know if we checked into a hotel and it looked like that we'd be really happy with the room it was really really a nice place to be it had beautiful gardens Matt loved being outdoors he loved walking in the outdoors he loved gardening so for him to be able to look out of some French windows at a beautiful Japanese garden just little things like that didn't make a massive difference as well as the excellent care and the facilities it was the little touches that just made the last few days so much more bearable and I can't imagine what it would have been like had he had to die in hospital to put it bluntly I think that would have been absolutely terrifying and you know there are alarms going off all the time the lights never turn off it's busy you are sort of overwhelmed constantly and had he had to die in hospital I think that would have been a very very different experience which although it was traumatic and will take us a very very long time to get over I think it would be so much more traumatic had he died in a big hospital. How are you doing now as a family? Um, it's obviously very difficult. We try and keep normality. I very much like Matt, I wanted normality. So I'm an assistant head teacher in a high school. I went back to work 
probably what some people thought was very quickly within a few weeks because I just needed that. I need to go to work. I need to do things that I know how to do that I can cope with. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm sort of out of my comfort zone where I am. I need to get back to stuff I know how to do. Um, so it's been very difficult, as you can imagine. Um, but I've been very keen to keep things normal for the children, for them to accept that um, this is our normal now. Um, for them to accept that life does carry on and we will still have fun and we will still go on holiday and we will still do nice things. And, and yes, we will miss daddy very much, but we still have to do nice things and we shouldn't feel guilty about that. If you could give one message to a person listening, I'm going to, I'm going to give you two messages, actually. A message to people who work in, in healthcare, what would that be from your experience? Um, Obviously, different settings have very different people working in them with different priorities. Um, but if it was healthcare in general, I would, I would really want people to take anyone's symptoms seriously. I think so many people who've um, gone through the pancreatic cancer diagnosis, there's always that frustration of if only something could have been done earlier. So from a GP point of view, my, my plea really would be please take symptoms seriously. For people at home as well, obviously take symptoms seriously. If you have any of the symptoms that... You know, it's something niggling, but it could be something more serious. Then please, please, please get it checked out because, you know, as I'm testament to the fact that if you leave it too late, then, you know, you could end up in a terrible, terrible situation. Um, my my sort of message to people working in general healthcare would be to not forget that and I'm, there are some amazing people who work in healthcare. So I don't want this to sound negative, but that everyone is an individual, that everyone has their own priorities, everyone has their own needs, that it really does need to be patient-centred, particularly when people are dealing with terrible, terrible situations and awful diagnoses and prognosis, that it's really about what the patient wants and what the patient needs. And there are some fantastic healthcare workers out there who I know from experience do think that constantly. And if you could give a message just to, I'm going to say normal people listening, but that sounds terrible. If you could give a, uh, I was going to say, let me do this so we don't say the word normal. Uh, if you could, if you could give a message then to a non-healthcare person, a lay person. Um, my big message to the general population would be to support your local hospice. Um, you know, we, we're used to seeing the fundraising. We're used to seeing the sponsor forms going around. There's always somebody doing a, a run or something for the local hospice. And we become a little bit blasé about it. It isn't until you need that service that you realise how absolutely crucial it is and what a massive difference it makes to people's lives. Um, the other thing that I didn't realise was how seriously underfunded they are. I thought that all the fundraising that went on was just for nice-to-haves, you know, some little extra things, um, I don't know, perhaps a nicer waiting area, things like that. I didn't realise that actually the day-to-day -day care isn't funded by the government, it's not funded by the NHS. It's only a tiny percentage, I think at very it's 20% of their funding is from the government. Everything else, they have to fundraise themselves. And when you start to look into how much it costs to keep someone in a bed for a day, how much it costs to feed somebody for a week, how much it costs to have the nursing staff in. You're talking about vast, vast amounts of money that if these hospices weren't expert at fundraising, they wouldn't be able to keep going. And, you know, you, we need them there. Thank you to Rachel for telling me her story about her and Matt and her family. It just goes to show, as always, we really need to make sure that symptoms are checked, symptoms are recognised first, they need to be recognised before they can be checked, and that we are not afraid to say, I'm not feeling well, and not afraid to go to our doctors. As the UK faces 
a winter of uncertainty when it comes to what's going to happen with the pandemic and the the, the toll of it on the NHS. Even more so, I think we need to make sure that we are talking to our doctors, our GPs, as and when we don't feel very well. It could be a matter of life and death. As always, look after yourselves. Thank you so much for listening to Purple Rainbow Pancreatic Cancer Podcasts. We will be back next week with another episode. Remember, because it is November, it is one a week for the whole month. If you want to find out more, you can go to our website, purplerainbow.co.uk.